Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. Very good. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you now and ask that you would make clear to us this mysterious uh, revelation. We know that it's made known to us in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean that we always grasp it either. And we have different ideas sometimes on how to apply or interpret or understand this mysterious passage of beasts and horns and uh, critters. So give us that wisdom, that discernment, convict us of truth, and help it to transform our lives that we might be image bearers, that we might reflect your glory to the world around us and to our family and our homes and our spouses and our own lives. And we thank you now for all things and ask that you do a mighty work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we go. So what we're going to do is we're going to start by going through chapter 8. Hopefully, chapter 7 is somewhat fresh in our minds to some extent. Uh, Actually, let me do that. Let me review chapter 7 briefly. Dive into chapter 8, figure out what it's saying. I really want to focus on only one section of chapter 8, more than anything. Uh, And then bring it to a discussion of what's the New Testament telling us now? What's the New Testament telling us? We looked at it a little bit last week with what does the New Testament say about Daniel 7, specifically in Revelation chapter 13. And I can review that again, but what we've got to realize is Son of Man is everywhere. It's, it's, it's all over the New Testament. Uh, and these, this, the theme of Daniel uh, runs, in my opinion, through the entire New Testament. So we'll, we'll see if we can do that as well. So Daniel 7 began with uh, this uh, description of um, four beasts. Uh, and the four beasts are what? What, is, what does Daniel tell us that they are? They represent kings or kingdoms. Evil kingdoms or evil kings, uh, etc. All right, and they oppose, ultimately, whom? Uh, God, but that's revelation, by the way. In Daniel, they oppose, more specifically, the people of God. They oppose the people of God. That's right, Israel, the people of God, the saints. Uh, So Daniel 7, verse 18, the saints of the highest one receive the kingdom. Uh, Verse 21, I'm sorry, of Daniel 7, I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints uh, and overcoming them. Oops, I didn't get this up and ready yet. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, that's Daniel 7, verse 21. So, they oppose the saints uh, of the Most High. That, so, so, verses 1 through 8 in, introduce us to these four beasts that represent four kingdoms, which verse uh, 17 tells us that. Then verses 9 through 14 describes God as the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is seated upon a chariot throne. Um, and, of course... The context of this is God sitting in court as the judge. Right? So, and verse uh, 10 says, 
the court sat and the books were open. And the judge, God, rules in favor of the saints. Now, in verses 9 through 14, which we have to go back over this later on, he rules in favor of the Son of Man. But the Son of Man, I mentioned briefly last week, is really a collective for the saints. Even though we understand in the New Testament it's Jesus. But in Daniel, the Son of Man is the people, the people of God, that, those whom the beast opposes. And God, sitting on his throne, rules in favor of the saints. The Son of Man, it says in verse 13, uh, uh, verse 14, to him, being the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So the saints win. The saints are victorious. Then in verses 15 through 28, Daniel goes into more detail about this conflict that's going on. And specifically, the conflict is this one particular horn that comes up from the fourth beast. Remember, the fourth beast was the one that got the most description. That was the most fear, fearsome of all the beasts. Terrifying and exceedingly dreadful. Right? Um, and so that fourth beast is the focal point, but we find out that it's actually this one horn. And horns signify what? Strength and power. So this one horn, which might be one king, or you know, we don't know. And remember last week, I didn't try to tell you what the four beasts are. Oh, it's, it's Greece, and it's Rome, and it's Russia. Yeah, we didn't do that. Okay? And we didn't need to do that, by the way. And we can still come up with an interpretation. We learn that the f- kingdoms of this world oppose. <laughs> the kingdom, this is crucial. The kingdoms of the world oppose the kingdoms of the kingdom of God. The nations of the world oppose the people of God. Always have, always will. And that's, that's, that's the New Testament now as well. But God, who sits on the throne, rules in favor of the saints and not in favor of the kingdoms of the world. And we're back at Daniel 2 again now, right? This great image is smashed to bits by the stone. And the stone becomes an everlasting kingdom. So also uh, the saints as well. So we find out as we go through 18, uh, 15 through 28 that this is really horrific because the horn wages war against the saints and he overpowers them, which is quite amazing when we think about it, uh, which maybe we'll go into later on as well. Um, but eventually, uh, the uh, uh, verse 27, the sovereignty, dominion, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people, the saints, of the highest one. There you go. Right? So verse 27 uh, of Daniel 7. Let me bring it up in case you missed it. 7, verse 27. Here we go. And it says, The sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms of the whole of heaven uh, will be given to the people, the saints, of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and that all dominions will serve and obey him. But Daniel's alarmed. So now, let's go to chapter 8. And I know we might have some questions looming there, and that's okay, because we're going to come back to 7, and, and 7 is really going to be the focal point of everything we continue to discuss, um, uh, even tonight as well. And, I, and what's going to happen now is this. Daniel 8 is going to focus on this little horn. Okay, let me step back a little, one second and say this. There's a whole bunch of apocalypses out there. At the time of the New Testament, so let's go to the book of Revelation. There was a plethora. There was a bunch of apocalypses out there. We've got Daniel, that's in the Bible. We've got Ezekiel, which is very apocalyptic in many ways. 
Uh, we got parts of Isaiah and Zechariah. So we have these apocalypses that are part of the Bible. But there's all these other apocalypses that the Jews wrote. And one of the things that the apocalypses that the Jews wrote, what they did was, they were almost always written to a community of people who were suffering. They were undergoing suffering, and almost always at the hands of a foreign nation. So the foreign nation is oppressing the people of God. And we talked about this with the beginning of Daniel, right? If the foreign nation oppresses your people, that means the gods of the foreign nation are superior to your God. So Daniel's writing, writing to say to Jews in exile, saying, not at all the case, our God is above all gods. And even Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar ultimately are confronted with this reality, right? That Yahweh is the God above all gods, and all the nations are in Yahweh's hand. And these images are what? All the kings of the world? Well, guess what? They were given authority for a little while, but ultimately God rules in favor of the people of God. So we see this going on. Well, the Jewish apocalypses of, let's say, the 2nd century and the 1st century, uh, B.C., B.C., so 100 to 200 years before Jesus, they don't have the luxury of a prophet. You see, at that time, the Bible's done. By the time of, by the time of Ezra, 5th century B.C., 400s, the Old Testament's done. Because it, it's done. There's no, there's no prophets. Okay? Don't worry about Tom. We'll talk later. All right. And so what happens is, these apocalypses, they, well, they're writing to a group of people that are undergoing suffering, trying to, to assure them that God is in control. And that all history uh, um, is in God's control. I'm not even going to go the same direction I just started going. I started going down a path, and I'm going to U-turn and go another direction now. <laughs> I didn't like where it was leading. And uh, you have no idea what I'm talking about, so I think we're all fine. So the, the point that is, Apocalypse is written to people undergoing suffering, and the point of which is to say, don't worry, God's going to be faithful, and your suffering will be short, it won't last long, and eventually God will establish his kingdom. That's kind of the themes of these apocalypses. All right. The Jewish history, I'm going down the path that I don't want to go down, but I can't get off of it, so I'm stuck. So, so, oh, Father, help me. I'll try that, and I'll try whatever else I can do. Whatever else I can do to get out of this one here. In the second century B.C., the Greeks got control of, of Palestine. Now, some of you know a little bit of the story, right? Cyrus the Great becomes the Persian emperor who overthrows the Babylonians, ultimately, right? The medium Persian emperor. All right. And he lets the Israelites go back to Israel. Daniel didn't go back, by the way. Shortly thereafter, Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, kind of lead this charge to go back and let's rebuild the walls and let's rebuild the temple. Haggai and Zerubbabel rebuild the temple. All right. In all reality, the Israelites have gone back to Israel. They've returned from the exile. But they're still ruled by foreign nations. They don't actually have independence. Ultimately, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, conquers the whole Persian Empire, right, and has essentially the largest empire in, in history, right, an incredible empire. 
Um, and after he dies, his empire gets split up by his generals. This is actually relevant to Daniel 8. His empire gets split up to his, by his generals. And shortly thereafter, well, shortly thereafter, 150 years later, um, it's short in history, the Greek control of Palestine, we'll call it Palestine. Palestine is actually the name of the Roman um, um, uh, area. All right, so it's still Israel, if you want to call it that. But that land was under the control of the Greek rulers, and one of those rulers was a man named Antiochus IV. Just the word Antioch with a U.S. at the end of it. Antiochus IV. Antiochus, long story, I'm not going to go into all the details. Eventually, in the year 167 B.C., okay, and the, the, this is kind of a very important for a number of different uh, uh, aspects of, of not only Daniel, but of everything that's going on in the New Testament and, and Jewish uh, writings as well. If you want to know about the story, read the books of Maccabees. Okay? First and second Maccabees tell the story that I'm kind of giving you the Reader's Digest version of. That doesn't mean Maccabees are inspired. Just read them. They're history books. Okay? They don't have to be inspired if you don't want them to be inspired this way. Uh, I don't think they're inspired. <laughs> Anyways, we're moving along. <laughs> Stephen, be quiet. In 167 B.C., Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of Zeus, decides to crack down on the Israelites. And he goes into the Jewish temple, sacrifices a pig on the altar. That's the tradition. A pig is an unclean animal. So, not so even pigs in Israel, right? And erects an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. This is called the abomination that makes desolation, which we're going to see about in, the, in Daniel 9 and following. All right. He, he desecrates the temple. He puts an end to the Jewish sacrifices. He changes the Jewish laws. No more Sabbath festivals. No, no more any of these things. And for three years, and like eight days, something like that. I'll give you the exact number next week when we talk about it. Um, he ceases, or sacrifices in the temple cease. In 164 B.C., three years and like eight days later, December to December, the Jews revolt against Antiochus and eventually cleanse the temple and sacrifices are, are, are reconstituted. Right? So for this three-year window of time, Antiochus is desecrating the temple. All right. In all simplicity here, Antiochus is the little horn. As we read Daniel 8, it's Antiochus. Okay? Um, the whole point of this becomes that, I'm not going to go into any detail and answer that in all detail, but just a little bit of historical study will pretty much, let's put it this way. Remember Daniel 7, I didn't try to tell you what 1st beast, 2nd beast, 3rd beast, 4th beast was? Because nobody agrees. And, and there's, there's kind of agreement on one of two main theories, but even then we don't have agreement on the two main theories. Everybody agrees that Antiochus is the little horn. Okay, there's almost nobody that dissents from that. Okay? Um, and maybe next week we'll get into more detail uh, on contemporary Christians and how we handle Daniel 9. Um, and I'll allude to something then as well. All right. So everyone tracking with me a, a little bit as well? So what's happening then is this, this climax of opposition to the people of God by a pagan government is Antiochus. Okay? Antiochus IV is just this, this epitome, until Nero maybe. As I said Nero, I think Romans 13, Revelation 13 is Nero, right? 
Until Nero, Antiochus was the epitome of a pagan ruler that desecrates the temple, that defiles the religious practice of the Jews, that persecutes the Jewish people, right, etc. So he's the little horn. And what is Daniel telling us? God is in control of even that little horn. Right? There's no pagan ruler that will ultimately be victorious forever over God's people. And so we're going to see a time designation here in Daniel 8 as well. And the point of that time designation is, it will only be for a little while. It won't be forever. All right, yes. Yes. Okay, the question is, is, is Antiochus a glimpse into the end times? Well, Jesus says, when you see the abomination that makes desolation. See, Jesus brings it up, and what does he say? It hasn't happened yet, or it will happen again. So Antiochus becomes that model of what Paul might call the man of lawlessness in in 2 Thessalonians. So yeah, Antiochus is that paradigm. Now, in Revelation, it's Nero now. See, I think Paul wrote before Nero did all of it. Well, obviously Paul wrote before Nero killed him. (laughs) Just if you think, do the math. Paul's not dead yet when he writes, and Nero kills him after... Yeah, got it. Okay. Um, So Antiochus is kind of that paradigm of the emperor that opposes the people of God and desecrates the temple. That's the key. Jesus describes this abomination that makes desolation, Matthew 24, Mark 13, as something that's that's to happen in the future. Uh, See, I wouldn't say that hasn't happened yet, because I think Jesus would acknowledge that Antiochus is the fulfillment of the little horn. And therefore indicates it's going to happen again. Paul seems to describe that as the men of lawlessness, and John describes that as Nero. Okay? As this, as this, but I think there's actually, there's a little bit more to go with that, though. We haven't clarified all that fully as well. Now, remember, I'm going to do a, a, a presentation in the seminar on the end times in April on the temple. Okay? Biblically speaking, what do we understand about the temple? Right? Are we looking for a rebuilt temple? All right? What does the New Testament say about the temple? And how do we understand the idea of the temple in the in, in light of the end times? All right, so I'll, I'll go into that a little bit, which I actually touched on a little bit last week, and I'll probably get there tonight anyways as well. So, Stephen, yes. another question that I'm not going to answer? What is it? <laughs> if we don't know who the beasts are, how do we know who the little horn on the fourth beast is? Well, uh, very good question. All right, if we don't know who the beasts are, uh, how do we know who the little horn on the fourth beast is? All right, A, I think I know who the beasts are. But what I wanted to do last week was to show you that our interpretation of this passage was not dependent upon identifying the beasts. And what we do so often is we want to know all the details, and then we miss the big picture. And so what I wanted to do last week was, let's just look at the big picture and not worry about the details. And we can interpret it that way. And, and that's the danger that I think we get into when we get to the end times in the New Testament as well, right? We try to figure out all the details. Who are the ten kings in Revelation 17? doesn't matter. What's the point? Okay. Now, that's what I said about numbers, right? Symbolic significance is first. Literal significance, maybe, if there is one, second. So that's my first point. Second, the second point is, um, I didn't want to go down this path of trying to identify the four, the four beasts then, because there is disagreement on it, all right, ultimately, even if we almost all agree on who the little horn is. Okay. Uh, um, as well. The point is, the fourth beast seems to be identified, 
All right? Or at least the little horn of the fourth beast is, even if we don't perfectly identify the first three beasts. Now, I'm saying that with, I, I know that there's actually an exception to that, and maybe next week when we get into Romans, to Daniel 9, I'll, I'll kind of lay that out for everyone's sake, because otherwise I'm, I'm going to speak past most people tonight. That's a pretty good answer for a non-answer. Very good. I'm very good at evading questions <laughs> with evasive answers. So, it's, it's called an apparent answer. It just looks like one. So, uh, let's go Daniel 8. Daniel chapter 8. Here we go. And uh, uh, I want us to focus on, the, on this middle section, not quite in the middle. So we're going to read through it and, and allude to a few things here briefly and then um, focus only on the middle thing because I'm, I'm not worried about the little horn. I'm not worried about Antiochus. I don't, I don't care about that uh, uh, for the sake of what we're trying to accomplish here in this class. So verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the, uh, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. Just like chapter 7, right? Subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Alam, which is in the, uh, which, uh, uh, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Don't worry about the details. Here we go. I lifted up my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. And the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with a longer one coming up last. And the ram, and I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him. Nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. And that's the key. He magnified himself. So let's keep pointing out these key, key statements here. While I was observing, verse 5, Behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And it came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and was enraged. Uh, uh, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. Uh, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled, him on, trampled on him. There's that word trampled. Not as a significant use there. Uh, as elsewhere, though. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat, so the first, in verse 4, the, the ram magnifies himself. Now verse uh, 7, uh, 8. The male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, let's stop there for a second now. All right. And I'm not worried about all the details here, but the bottom line is um, the uh, uh, male goat is Alexander the Great. All right? And it fits, I know it's if we play this, I know it's he's writing history, he's writing history using animals as key players. Because after all, guess what? What do we know? Kings are beasts, less than human, right? Because they're not fulfilling their actual role of image bearing people. And therefore, image, if you're not an image bearer, you're therefore less than human. Just, just the way he's writing the story. Okay? Um, by the way, we actually see this uh, 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 done elsewhere as well. It fits very perfectly. He, he comes from the West. Um, there you go. Uh, 821. If you go to 8, chapter 8, verse 21, I won't bring it up on the screen. Uh, it says very specifically, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. See? The goat's Alexander the Great. And what did Alexander the Great do? He charged from the west, and he just destroys the Medo-Persian Empire. 
And I think that's why uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the ram with two horns is Me- Media and Persia. Me- the Persian Empire unites with the Median Empire, and there's two of them. It's, it's just this one animal with two horns. No problem. It's most likely the ram with two horns is the Medo Persian Empire. We know Alexander the Great, because he tells us in verse 21 that's Greece. So it seems to be Alexander the Great. He comes and he conquered and he established an incredible empire from Greece to India. By the time he was like 30 something years old. Right? And then he dies. Alcoholism or something like that. Um, uh, that's what happens when power. And by the way, notice he magnified himself exceedingly in verse 8 uh, as well. So here we go. So we've got, uh, we've, we've got history playing out, specifically the, this fourth beast ultimately playing out. Uh, and it's going to uh, uh, wiggle its way. Now, when Alexander the Great, Great dies, by the way, um, his empire was divided amongst his four generals. Okay, so you see the horn was broken off, and they came up in verse uh, 8. They came up four conspicuous horns. It's Alexander the Great. His empire was divided amongst his four generals. All right? Ultimately, two of the generals gained prominence, and then ultimately one of them, through some succession, gained prominence in Palestine, where the Israelites had, had gone back to as well. Okay, so verse 9, and this is the section I want us to focus on. This is going to be the most confusing section of all. I think it is, but we'll see. Maybe it's not. Uh, out, of the, out of one of them, I'm sorry, thank you, Jared. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. That would be Palestine, Israel. All right. Um, here we go, verse uh, 10. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Remember I highlighted the word trampled last week. There it is again. It trampled them down. Verse 11. And it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. All right, let me stop real fast there, because I want to uh, check out what the translations say, which are all reading in verse 11. And it says, <coughs> was that in verse 11? Or was that verse 10? Yeah, I thought it was in verse 11. I'm in verse 11. I want to see, I'm sorry, I'm looking for something specific. I'll show you here in a second, as soon as I can find it. Verse 11. Uh, New American Standard says, oh, I got that dot in the way, and there we go, here we go. New American Standard says, um, the place of a sanctuary. Net Bible says, whose sanctuary? Just says sanctuary. Uh, ESV says, place of the sanctuary. New King James, I'm I'm looking at the word place. Place of a sanctuary. Um, New Living Translation, destroying his temple. The word temple's not there, the word place is there, actually. Um, but that's okay. Um, so well, I may get back to that later. So just not quite all my curi- own personal curiosity. Um, but I want to build on that later, hopefully. So verse 12. On account of the transgression, this is Antiochus most likely, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long? All right, we've got to stop for a second. That's the great question of all the apocalypses. How long, O Lord? Right? 
They're written to people who are undergoing suffering. And their cry is, how long, O Lord? And we'll look at that phrase as it appears throughout Scripture, by the way. It's in the Psalms, it's, and it runs through the Apocalypses, and it's in the book of Revelation as well. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression comes, horror, ca- causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? There's that word again. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Okay? So let's look at this section here very briefly. All right? And let's see what we might have. I put it on the bottom of page 17. Unanimous opinion that the horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? Uh, Let's see. Here we go. Challenges the prince. We'll maybe discuss that later on. Uh, Point number seven, he removes the regular sacrifices. Antiochus did that. Desecrated the altar of the temple. The place of the sanctuary was thrown down. Uh, the, the phrase is frequently the dwelling place of God. It's not the word temple, but it means temple. That makes sense? Uh, and it's an interesting word that's used. It's an interesting word that's used by Jesus also, by the way, but we won't have time to discuss that tonight. Um, the host and the regular sacrifices were thrown down. The point is the rebellion is the rebellion of the little horn or of God's people. I think it's the little horn. Don't worry about it. Um, truth was flown to the ground, etc. Now, the, the difficulty of all we have, well, what, what is he doing? The key is, is, it's actually an expansion of chapter 7. If we remember that, chapter 8 is expansion of chapter 7. And what do we learn in chapter 7? The kingdoms of the world oppose the people of God, and God will let them rule only for a little while, and then ultimately God will rule in favor of his own people. Therefore, we're going to be trampled, but it won't be forever. How long? Oh, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Okay? So, even if we don't know all these details, and again, I don't think it matters, all the details. It's not really the point. The whole moral of the story is, God will rule in favor of his people. His people cry out, how long? And the answer is, only for a little while. Don't worry about it. Okay? All right, so let's pick it up now in verses uh, 15 through 25, which is the same thing as in chapter 20, I'm sorry, in chapter 7, it's an interpretation of the vision. Okay, so now Daniel's going to be told what all this might mean. Verse 15, it came about that I, Daniel, had seen the vision, that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. Remember, Daniel interprets the visions of chapters 1 through 6, but now an angel has to tell Daniel what his visions are. Remember that from last week? So here we go. Uh, And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. One of the few times in the Bible that an angel is named, by the way. Right? Gable. Uh, and Michael is the only other one that's named specifically. Um, uh, and he came near to where I was standing, and, so, and when he came, I was frightened. And I fell on my face. And he said to me, Son of man. Now notice Daniel is called Son of man. See how I said it last in Daniel 7? Son of man is not just Jesus. It's all the people of God. Daniel's one of the Son of men. Son of man. Um... Understand the vision that pertains to the time of the end. While he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. They touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Right, well, maybe we'll talk about that also tonight. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, don't we? 
The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. See? Easy. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander the Great. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which arise from his nations, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. And his power will be mighty, but not his own power. Let me scroll down, please. Oops, I just blew that. What verse was I in, please? Thank you very much. All right, uh, here we go. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he'll destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. There you go, there's the people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He'll magnify himself in his heart, and he'll destroy many while they are at ease. And he will even oppose the prince of princes. But he'll be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which you have been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. So very similar introduction, very similar conclusion to the vision of Daniel chapter 7 now. Uh, again, uh, as well, right? Uh, let's note a couple things here now. Um, we'll get to that time of the end here uh, later on. Uh, let's see. Uh, I, I actually listed some of the details about the four generals. There you go. Um, so you got some historical information for you as well. Died at the age of 33. Um, his two young sons were murdered off, were murdered, and the kingdom divided amongst the four generals. Uh, four generals of the four horns. The, the latter period of the rule, a king will arise. Um, skilled, it, it's universally considered to be Antiochus IV, who's a Seleucid ruler. It's one of the generals. Um, you see Seleucus up here, one of the generals. So Antiochus is in that, that kingdom as well. He'll destroy the holy people. Same thing as Daniel 7. All right. Um, let's see. And he ordered the cessation of temple sacrifice in 167 BC. All right. And he opposed the prince of princes. The Jews consider this an attack against God Himself. Okay. And right, let me stop there. Let's make sure we have a little clarity. Some questions, confusion. If you if you say, well, what about this? And it's something I'm going to discuss in a few minutes. I'll say, hold on. I'll get to that in a few minutes. Let's make sure we have the general feel of Daniel 8. If it's a detail, let's not worry about it. But if there's a detail you think is important, fine. Go ahead. Yes. Okay, very good. Let's go to the question about the time frame. Is that right? Uh, um, Katrina's question uh, on page 18. Uh, the question is, it says, how long? And uh, it says 2,300 evenings and mornings. All right. Since the context, as it's made clear at the end of the chapter, seems to be Antiochus's ending of the sacrifices... The sacrifices were offered in the morning and in the evening. And it specifies in Daniel 8, uh, verse 14, 2,300 evenings and mornings. The question that we have to ask is, is that 2,300 days, remember in Genesis, there was evening and morning the first day. Evening, so counting a day is evening and morning. That's one day. So, so there's two ways to count this. One is 2,300 days. Evening and morning being one day, 2,300 of them. Or it could be 2,300 sacrifices, one in the morning, one in the evening, and one in the morning. That would be 1,150 days. Okay. And it's not clear. Did everyone catch that? OK. 
So it's, it's not clear. And, and the answer by which is, is it's of a short duration. The people who are suffering. Yeah, the people who are suffering. 2,300 days. 2,300 days. That's right, that's right. The, the reality is, that's right, it doesn't sound like a short period of time at all, but this is a period of, this is a people that have been oppressed for hundreds of years. Right? Hundreds of, hundreds of years. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Right? I mean, they've been under oppression in Babylon. They've been under oppression in Assyria. They, 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 so, 2,300 evening, the, the reality is, long time, right? It's not forever. It's not forever. All right, you're pressing the details too far. Yeah, all right, very good. You're pre- yeah, the, Katrina's, you're saying it's still continuing into the present day. Right? Okay, very good. And, and, here's the, and here's the question that's this. If we press the numbers, literally, we get ourselves in trouble. The numbers aren't meant, in my opinion, at all. And none of the numbers in Apocalypse are meant to, to be pressed, literally. The numbers are symbolically significant. Now, what's the answer? 2,300 is a long time, but it's not forever. God will establish his kingdom. And so one of my presentations in the the seminar on the end times will be uh, um, uh, about the second coming of Jesus, even though we're going to do a four-week study and Sunday mornings about it as well. After that, we're going to talk about what are the signs that precede the coming of Jesus. What are we waiting for? All right. And so we'll, we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit more then. But if we're saying, well, it's going to be 2,300 mornings and evenings, and, and it's been longer than that. It's only been longer than that if the number is a literal number. Yeah, it's six and a half years, right? right? Six and a third years. It doesn't matter. See, and that's, by the way, that only depends on whether it's 2,300 days or if it's 1,150 days. Now it's only three and a half years. 3.15 years. Yeah, 3.15 years. All right, and by the way... <laughs> 167 to 164. Three years. Now, if you read Jewish literature, the, the Maccabean, uh, Antiochus desecrated the temple for three years, and I want to say like 14 days, eight days, something like that. All right. That's how long it was. From December something of 167 to December something of 164. A little more than three years. All the Jewish literature refers to it as three and a half years. Always, it's three and a half years. How long was the Maccabean revolt? Three and a half years. Or, I'm sorry, the Maccabean suffering under Antiochus. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Three and a half is a very symbolically significant time frame in Jewish literature as the period of time during which the people of God suffer. It's just a symbolic time frame. It wasn't literally three and a half years, by the way. It was actually three years and a few days. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three and a half years. Okay. Now, that's a little time frame. Why did he minister for three and a half years? You see, all reality, he could have said what he had to say. A few months' time, train his disciples, maybe give him eight months to do that. Go to the cross. By the way, for all of us, what Jesus did was the cross, the cross, the cross. No, yes, really, really, really important, but not all. Three and a half years, Jesus is living out the suffering of the people of Israel. Any Jew in the first century would have known it. His ministry was three and a half years long because that's the length of the Maccabean suffering. That's the length of the people of God's suffering. It's just universal. 
So you see the significance now? Even though the, the time frame was symbolic, Jesus literally lived it out. And by the way, he did that with other things, right? 40 days in the wilderness because it symbolized 40 years. You know, he's not doing things randomly. It was very, it was very, uh, all right, any other questions or comments here, Stephen? So why is there an inspired history? Uh, because prophecy had ceased. Uh, uh, the question is, why isn't there an inspired history of this? Because prophecy had ceased. All right, now, that will get to chapter 9 of, uh, that's chapter 9 that answers that question. Why did prophecy cease? Why, you know, why wasn't there, you know, this going on? Well, not, 9 won't directly answer it, but it will put it in, in a little bit of a context. That's next week. That's next week. So, the time frame of the New Testament is three and a half years, right? That's the book of Revelation. And we have to, we're going to deal with that next week in Daniel, Daniel 9. Because Daniel 9 has these 70 weeks and this three and a half years and this seven and all that. We'll, we'll, we'll address that next week. And I'm not going to shy away from, you know, modern controversy uh, on Daniel 9. We just can't. We just, we got to flush it out. And some say this and some say this and those guys are wrong. <laughs> just kidding. Um, uh, as well. All right. So anybody else questions? Yeah, Debbie first. Well, no, I think that's pressing too much. Uh, um, the question is, is there anything significant about the time frame from the Old Testament to the New Testament? I think that's uh, pressing too much. Other than there's a chronology in Daniel 9 that people want to literalize. I don't agree with it. I think you press the details way too much. You take a symbolic number and make it literal, and you can do all kinds of really neat things with the numbers in Daniel 9. And I'm just not convinced that they work. They don't end up with the cross. The best one you can do is the Palm Sunday, and that's really suspect all by itself, and you really had to tweak a bunch of numbers to do that. And I, you just try to take symbolic literature, and, 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 and then you look at the prophets. Now, by the way, let me just clarify. This is kind of going into next week, by the way. The prophets will say, 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Right? And Nineveh is not destroyed at all. Right. Why? Because they repented. No, God didn't change their mind. They repented. The point was, you got four days to repent, or I'll destroy you. Even if it doesn't say that. They repented. Okay, cool. I'm not going to destroy Why would I destroy a righteous city? I'm destroying a wicked city. So when Israel's told, you got 70 years, or you got 490 years, don't press that literally, because if they repent before that, God won't wait that long. Right? So that's the problem when we get into Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, we press those numbers literally, and John the Baptist said, repent. That's John the Baptist, right? If you repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It, you don't have to wait for 490 years. Because if you repent before then, God will stop. Got to, got, to, got to renege. And that's what Daniel 9 is all about, by the way. Daniel's saying, would you please, you know, like, not impose the punishment any longer? And the answer is, oh, sorry, it's sevenfold increased. We'll, we'll look at that next week. So, all right. Um, uh, Debbie, you had a question. It's, it's inferred. The question is, is there sacrifice in the, the original language of, of, of uh, uh, Daniel 8, verse 14? And, and no, it seems to be inferred. That, that's why we have two possibilities. Is it evenings and mornings, as in a day of Genesis 1, therefore it's 2,300 days? Or is it talking about the evening and morning sacrifices, which were alluded to a few verses earlier, right? Uh, well, actually, the, the previous verse. He'll put an end to the regular sacrifice, and that's his reference in the morning and evening sacrifices, 2,300 of those, 
which is 1,150 days. Yeah, but it's the 2,300 sacrifices, and there's two of them a day. That's only 1,150 days. Yes. Well, let's save that for next week, because that's, that's Daniel 9 anyways. Okay, thank you. All right, yes. How do you we know when we're pressing it too much? Like, what details matter and details don't matter? Good question. Uh, how do we know when we're pressing it too much? What details matter, what details don't matter? A, when you press a, an apocalyptic... Ready? When you press an apocalyptic detail too literally, you've gone too far. It's just an apocalypse. May 21st, Hell Camping. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, 1994 was absolutely unavailable, too. And that didn't work. It's the same. I meant that because it's the same guy. Yeah. Well, and, and what he's doing, by the way, is he's actually taking numerology, the, the numbers, and imposing them, uh, you know, beyond an apocalypse, right? An apocalypse is, well, Jesus told the parable of the sower, right? And the birds come and snatch the, the, the seed away, right? Is it really birds? He tells us the birds represent Satan. Don't pro- so you, you know when you're in that, it's the genre. That's why we did that class on biblical interpretation. Genre is so important. And what we don't realize is, that's why I think it's so important to understand modernism and the Enlightenment, because most of us have come from a tradition that is scientifically precise in exactness and modernism of literalism. And we're safe with that, aren't we? Right? See, here's the, here's the, here's the point. The reason why people get uncomfortable when we start saying, that's symbolically significant, is this. If it's literally significant, it's easy. No disputing it. We all know what it means. Right? No problem. Seven means seven. Okay. If it's symbolically significant, who's to say what the symbolic significance is? It opens the door for disagreement. It opens the door for us to be a little loose. And the cults walk through these doors. And we don't like it when the cults walk through these doors. And the best way to close the door on the cults is to do what? Just demand literalism. It's the plain meaning of the text. Luther and Calvin did this to the, to the Roman Catholics, to Rome, by the way. If you put the Bible in the hands of the people, they'll corrupt it. Oh, no, 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 the Bible's easy, it's plain. It's, it comes from this tradition. Okay? This is, and and I'll, I'll go into this in church history course in, in a couple weeks. This is exactly what the Christians of the 20th century did, and I don't fault them, I'm saying they're bad, but it's, it's come down to us, and I think it's affected negatively our interpretation of certain things. Most, no, most notably apocalyptic literature, Daniel and uh, Revelation and, and even the New Testament to some extent. Um, and that is when Charles Darwin said, I know how it happened. We evolved. And here's a scientific proof for that. The church responded by saying, Genesis said God made anything by, according to its kind. No problem, I, I agree with that. But we didn't engage them in rational dialogue. We engaged them with dogma. And the way to safeguard Genesis was to literalize it. If it's 24-hour days, it's 24-hour days. 24 means 24. No problem. I'm no, right? Great. Whatever. And guess what, so guess what we did? To defend Genesis, we then did the same thing with Revelation. And then we did the same thing with the Gospels, because the next thing we're going to do is take Jesus away from me, too. 
If Adam wasn't historical, Jesus isn't historical. And we can't have that, because that's our atonement, right? He lives, he lives. You guys all heard the hymn? He lives, he lives. Ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Not here. Here. Right? We responded with an emotionalism and a dogmatism. Okay? And we're safe now. We've safeguarded the Bible. Right? It can't be corrupted. Because it means what it means. And as soon as you start saying it's symbolic here or there, the next question becomes, well, how do we know it's not symbolic there? Jesus. That never happened. It was just on the cross. And it just means we should, like, sacrifice for one another. No. The Gospels are historical genre, essentially, right? Not the same as modern-day history, but it's historical. He died. He's a real man. No problems. But when he tells a parable, different genre. When Daniel says, I saw a vision, and I saw the shaggy beast, and it was a goat. Right? It's not literal. It's symbolic. And we have to figure out what that, symbol, that symbolism is. So does that make sense, everyone? Are we okay with that? All right. Hey, let's take a quick break here. We've got a lot to do. And uh, uh, a lot to do. So here we go. I hope that was helpful, though. What I want us to do now is we got a whole bunch of pieces that are all over the place. And I want us to tie in the New Testament uh, into it all. So Daniel 7, verse 9, we had this Ancient of Days. None of this is in your notes. Ready, guys? So I'm going to throw out some verses. I'll throw them up on the screen. If you want to write them down, that's great. Uh, most, uh, hardly any of this is going to be in your notes. Um, I'm, I'm making it all up. Uh, <laughs> Revelation chapter 1. So, so if you're looking at Daniel 7, verse 9, all right, the Ancient of Days and the description of the Ancient Days, now what I want us to do is compare Revelation chapter 1, and it's actually John's vision of Jesus. All right, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw one like a son of man. That's Daniel 7. Clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool. That's the Ancient of Days. Like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, which has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. So that's Jesus, because I was dead. And yet he's described in language fitting of the Ancient of Days in the book of Revelation. All right, let's turn earlier in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Remember that son of man in Daniel 7, who's coming on the clouds of heaven. And now we see that that son of man who's coming on the clouds of heaven is Jesus himself, because he's the one whom they have pierced uh, as well. Um, in In Daniel 7, verse 14, to him was given dominion. Right? In glory and honor, what does Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. The Great Commission is Jesus giving out what he has been given authority to do 
as the divine son of man. All right? So uh, that Matthew 28, 19, and 20 as well. All right, now, uh, the son of man in Daniel 7, in the context of Daniel 7, it seems that the, the son of man is the people, the holy ones, the saints of the Most High. And, and the reason why I say that is because, as we saw in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8, the first half of each chapter lays out the vision, and the second half of each chapter lays out the interpretation. So in the vision of Daniel 7, we have the Son of Man. But in the interpretation, the horn waged war against the saints. And it's plural. So it seems that the Son of Man is a corporate for the people. All right, well, with that in mind, we've also discussed the parallels between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. In both cases, you have four kingdoms. And in both cases, those four kingdoms are destroyed, ultimately by the Son of Man or by the stone. And when we talked about Daniel 2, we talked about Jesus as a stone, right? The stone the builders rejected, this became the capstone. Uh, Jesus is the cornerstone. So now let's go back to 1 Peter 2, verse 4, now that we have the context of Daniel 7 in mind. And notice what it says. It says... And coming to him, that's Jesus, this is 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Okay, I'll scroll down so you can see the address. Um, coming to him as a living stone, notice Jesus is a stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice what happens. Jesus is a stone, we're stones. The Son of Man is the people of Israel, the people of God. The Son of Man is Jesus. The Son of Man is us. Right? Because Daniel is the Son of Man. So there's this fulfillment in Jesus that's also fulfilled in us. Now, obviously, we're not claiming to be divine. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is the Son of God, eternal God in human flesh, who did as the perfect representative of Israel what we now, who have been made perfect by the Spirit of God, are to be living out uh, uh, as well. So there's this interesting parallel uh, there. All right, now let's go to Mark chapter 8, verse 13. We see several what we call passion predictions uh, in the Gospel of Mark. I'm sorry, not 8.13, I thought that was wrong. Um, 8.31. Okay, and look what Jesus says here. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed after three days, you must rise again. Okay? Now let's skip over to, uh, I think this is the right verse, 931. He was teaching his disciples, Mark, Gospel of Mark again, Mark 931, and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered in the hands of men, they'll kill him, when he's been killed, it'll rise three days later, but they, they didn't understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Okay? What do you mean the Son of Man must suffer many things? You see, Jesus seems to indicate, and he, and he says it elsewhere, right? Uh, um, I'm thinking of Luke 24. I can't think of the verse off the top of my head right now. Um, it is prophesied that the Son of Man must suffer. But we all know that the Jews of the first century have no concept of a suffering Messiah. No concept. 
because Jesus is putting himself in the role of the Son of Man of Daniel. And what do we know about the Son of Man in Daniel? He will suffer, right? Daniel 7, verse 21 again. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overcoming them. Verse 25 of Daniel 7. He'll speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints to the highest one. If the Son of Man is the people of Israel, but Jesus is taking on the role of the people of Israel, then the Son of Man must suffer. If I am to be Israel for the sake of Israel, I must suffer. If Jesus is a stone that destroys the statue, and we're stones, then we're to be defeated in the kingdoms of this world. And if Jesus must suffer, then guess what? Paul says we must enter, we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You see, Daniel 7 is so important and so relevant because it is us. You know, Katrina's question earlier was, but I don't, I don't get it because this is still happening. How could it be 2,300 days? The point is, let's not worry about the numbers for a second. It is still happening. How are we to overcome, which is the Greek word means conquer, the kingdoms of the world through suffering? You see, Jesus is a stone that destroys the statue, right? How did he do it? Through the cross and through the resurrection. If we also are stones that thereby destroy the statue, how do we do it? By taking up our crosses. By suffering. If you haven't figured out, by the way, I really don't agree with health and wealth and prosperity gospel. A little bit of a problem with that. The people of God are called to suffer and to endure uh, um, as well. All right, now let's go a little further. Here we go. Here we go. um, Son of Man in the Gospels. The title Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Right? In fact, the title Son of Man is essentially, you can quibble about this a little bit, but essentially only found on the lips of Jesus. Okay? So there's a couple of exceptions to that when it's being applied to Jesus by by somebody else. Uh, But they're referring to Jesus. So in the New Testament, it's the title for Jesus for himself. All right. Um, Now, notice... In the Gospels, let's go to Luke 4. The temptation of Jesus by the devil. Now remember, the Son of Man will inherit a kingdom, dominion, and glory. Right? That's the the Son of Man. Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. Look what the devil offers Jesus. Okay? Luke uh, 4, I'm going to guess. Just say 1, and we'll go there. Here we go. Um... Uh, let's see, verse 6. To any, the devil said to him, I will give you this domain and its glory, for it's been handed to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. The devil offers Jesus the very things that he will gain, but Jesus knows the only way I can gain a kingdom and dominion and glory is to suffer many things. The devil is offering Jesus kingdom and dominion and glory without the suffering. Can't take it. He can't, he can't get it this way. The only way he can get the kingdom and dominion is I must suffer many things. Right? 
That's how he's going to defeat it. So interesting there. All right, moving along. Mark 2. Mark chapter 2. All right, and here we go. Looking at the clock. Oh, we're doing quite well. We've got an hour and a half to go. Yes. Oh, I didn't tell you this is an extended class tonight. Yeah, daylight savings time early. Mark 2. Jesus um, heals the paralytic. Remember the four men carry this guy into the house? All right. Seeing his faith, verse 6, verse 5, he said, My son, your sins are forgiven. They said, verse 7, why does he speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who are you? Uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, verse 8, immediately, uh, Jesus was aware in his spirit that they were reasoning with that way within themselves. And he said, why are you reasoning this way about these things? Verse 9, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your mallet, and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. So, this is this famous title of Jesus for himself. Now, he can use this title for himself because the Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand Son of Man as a messianic title. Son of Man meant what? The people of Israel. He's calling himself an Israelite. Jesus uses it in an exclusive way. For himself as the Messiah, right? But that's not clear yet. Now we'll go to we'll go to the end of the Gospels, Mark fourteen now, verse sixty-two. For those of you who are taking notes, fourteen sixty-two. All right, let me go back to verse sixty-one at least. Right? Uh, he kept silent, and the high priest said to him, "Are you the Christ?" Which is the Greek word for Messiah, right? Hebrew Messiah, English, the Anointed One, the Son of the Blessed One. And he said. I am. Not literally, by the way, in the Greek. I think the the proper translation is, you said it. That's how you would translate the Greek. You're saying it. But look what he says next. And you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, that's the Ancient of Days, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And he tore his clothes and said, we have no need of, of witnesses, you've heard the blasphemy. So it's not until Jesus uses the title Son of Man in this clearly almost in the context of the Ancient of Days, that they realize, hey, you mean more to this than just what Ezekiel called himself. Because he's, I think 90-something times Ezekiel calls himself the Son of Man. You're, you're saying you're more than a prophet then, aren't you? All right, so Caiaphas finally figures that out. That's Mark 14, sorry about that, George, verses 61 and 62. Mark 14. Okay, moving along now. All right, we have this, this trample language, right? And I, I don't, I don't, for the sake of time, if we go through Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, we see the little horn tramples the people of God, 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 right? Now, of course, you know, uh, Alexander tramples the little horn, but or, or tramples the goats and all that good stuff as well. Luke, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 11. This has to be the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. That's not God making me choke, by the way, because I said that. Revelation chapter 11. I don't have time to play all this out, but I will, of course, in a Revelation study this summer. Thursday night to the classroom near you. There was given to me a measuring rod. This is John speaking about himself now. Like a staff. And a measuring rod like a staff being given him means he's being told that you're a prophet now. 
And the last verse of chapter 10 was, go prophesy. So he's going to go prophesy. And an angel gives him a, a rod. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God. And the altar, and those who worship in it. All right, and if your NIV says, count the worshipers in it, it's a really bad translation. And leave out the court, which is outside the temple. And don't measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will, the Greek says, trample. Tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. This is Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. And those who tramples it, the nations do. The four beasts that oppose the people of God in Daniel 7, that make war with them. Remember, verse 21 is crucial in Daniel 7. He will make war with them, with the saints, and overcome them. In Revelation 11, it's being depicted as he's going to trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, I'm opening a big can of worms here, but I think it's okay right now. Ready? Holy city, if we're in Daniel 7, it must mean the people. It doesn't mean the city. It means the people. You can trample a city all you want. Who cares? But the city is the people. Okay? Now, let's go one more step. In Revelation, it's without question the people, by the way. I can see you're struggling with that, Dave. Um, it's unequivocally the people of God, by the way, um, uh, here. But, but I'll, I'll, I, leave, I leave the fact that I have to defend that understood. Uh, um, later on. Read my dissertation and it's taken care of. Um, there you go. Um, now, in the book of Revelation, we have a principle that you see through Scripture that I've referred to a few times called lex talionis. Lex talionis means the law of retaliation. Right? Lex is law in Latin. Uh, talionis. Law, law of retaliation. You see it in Genesis. Abraham, if they bless you, I will... Bless them. If they curse you, I will. That's the law of of Talion. Right? Lex Talionis. Whatever they do to my people, that's what I will do to them. Jesus says it in Matthew 25. Whatever you do for the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it for me. Judgment Day is, what did you do, I think, to God's people? If you bless them, he'll bless you. If you curse them, I'll curse you. What do we find out happening? They're going to trample the holy city, which in Daniel 7 is the people, underfoot. Revelation chapter 14. It's three and a half years. That's right. And I may or may not have to. Well, actually, that'll be next week anyways. If I do get into three and a half years, it'll be next week, Daniel 9 as well. All right. Here we go. In In Revelation 14, we have two judgment scenes. One is... Uh, in verses 14 through 16, and it's a harvest of a sickle, and it says, go and reap. I'm not going to bring it up on the screen here, if, I, if that's okay. Uh, and it says, and reap, uh, what's the, verse, the word I want? Um, and let's see, okay. The harvest of the earth is ripe, and what's the word I want? Okay. Uh, it's, 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 it's an imagery of a grain harvest. And the grain harvest, without the details here, 14 through 16, imagery of a grain harvest. The grain harvest, I believe, as, as, and it'll flush out here in a second, symbolizes the harvesting of the people of God at Judgment Day. Remember Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares? And they grow up together and don't uproot them now because if you do, you'll uproot some of the wheat. 
at the second coming of Jesus, it's the harvesting of the righteous. Verses 17 through 20 now is the imagery of a grape harvest. And it says, another, temp- another angel came out of the temple, verse 17. He also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over the fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because their grapes are ripe. And he swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled. Same Greek word in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8 and in Revelation 11 too. This is clearly a judgment of the wicked. It's the wrath of, of, of God. The winepress of the wrath of God. So the rights were harvested. Now the wicked are harvested. And what happens to the wicked? They're trampled. Why are they trampled? Because that's what you did to my people. You trampled my people, I'm going to trample you. Right, without great detail, in Revelation 16, later on it says, these bowls of judgment are poured out. Just to support the theme I'm on. These bowls of judgment are poured out, and in the middle of the bowls, an angel stops and says, Righteous and true are these judgments, for you have so judged, for they have poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. The bowls are poured out. A good translation will do this. It says they poured out the bowl. They poured out the bowl. They poured out the bowl because they poured out the blood of your saints. God pours out his wrath upon them. Because you trampled God's people, God will trample you. Revelation 19, same theme. Second coming of Jesus is described, right? Revelation 19. Are we we tracking well? Uh, Very good. It's this theme of trample. That's why the word trample was so important. The second coming of Jesus. And it says, I'm going to skip down to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And he tramples, same Greek word, the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. All right, I actually skipped verse verse 13. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And notice, the armies which are in heaven are following him on white horses. And he comes and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Um, very quickly since I've introduced it. And I'm not going to get to everything tonight, am I? Good, that's okay. Um, uh, Isaiah 63. You see, Jesus' robe is dipped in blood, right? It's not his blood. Oh, great Christian theology. Oh, it's Jesus' blood. You know, it's the blood of Christ. He died for your sins. No, it's not. Isaiah 63, verse 2. Why is your apparel red? Read verse 1 later on when you get a chance. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the wine press. See the theme? Red garments like one who trampled in the wine press. Here's the answer Isaiah 63, verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them, there's that same word, in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. It's the blood of his enemies. Because he's trampled them, because they trampled on God's people. Okay, And for John's readers who are familiar with Daniel, the, the horn tramples on his people, and tramples on his people, and tramples on his people. And the answer is, 
and he'll trample on the holy city for 42 months. Right? I think that supports a little bit already that this is people that, 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 that's being trampled on. And therefore, God will trample on the wicked because of what they've done to God's people. Okay? Very good. Now, one more verse on that same theme. Luke chapter 10. This one's really cool. All right? Luke chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And behold, I've given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall injure you. As we go a little farther in Daniel, what we saw last week in Revelation actually, is that the four kings and kingdoms and the beast in Revelation 13 have their authority and power from the dragon. Revelation 13, right? And Jesus' answer is, because the Son of Man suffered many things and rose from the dead on the third day, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You see, Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15. Death has lost because Christ died and rose again. Death is the devil's domain. And the devil empowers these kingdoms. And Jesus' answer is, two guys are stones, people. Two guys are stones. You're going to destroy these images of the nations. And Satan also. I gave you authority to tread on serpents. So what's the message? Guys, we're going to suffer many things. We must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. But that's our victory. Our death is our victory. We rise again. He rose again. Therefore, be victorious. Don't go, oh, you know, it's so tough being a Christian because the world's world's all opposed to us. They're imprisoning us all around the world. They're making laws like we can't even have the Ten Commandments in our schools. Can you believe it? You know, instead, be victorious. Shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul says in Philippians 3, Philippians 2. And be victorious, because even death is actually our victory. It's just a wonderfully empowering message um, that I think we can learn from as Christians and go, okay, I'm a king. I'm a queen. We rule. God's establishing his kingdom. It's already begun in Jesus Christ. We're not awaiting something. Well, okay, we're awaiting something. But in the meantime, let's build. And let's do so victoriously. All right, questions, comments, thoughts? Here, we got a few more things. Um, waging war. Actually, no, not too much more. All right, a couple more references, and maybe I'll throw out at the beginning of class next week. And then Daniel 9, and Daniel 9, you thought that was fun. All right, wait till we get to chapter 9. Now we got like 77s and princes and all kinds of weird stuff. All right, here we go. Father, we give you praise because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the one with a sharp sword that comes out of your mouth and you ride on a white horse in victory. And Father, we do not glory in your treading on the winepress. We don't glory in that because 
we fear that our relatives, our family members and friends and co-workers might be some of those who are trampled on. And we don't want that, Lord Jesus. We want your kingdom to be made known to them. We thank you that it's because of your grace and the work of Christ and the cross and the power of your Holy Spirit that we no longer are those grapes that are being trampled, but the grain that's being harvested. And we give you praise for that. And therefore, we have no fear of death. And Lord, we ask that you would empower us with this message to be dynamic Christians, to realize the devotion tomorrow morning of 20 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour of our time is nothing because it has an eternal significance. And all the other things that we would have done with that 30 minutes or hour or 10 minutes or whatever it might have been are things of this world that would have passed away anyways. So we can be faithful and devote ourselves no longer to mammon, but to the kingdom of God. Because your kingdom is a stone that's made without human hands that will be an everlasting kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. And help us to understand that and be empowered by that so that we can empower those around us as well. We thank you and praise you, Father, for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.